0: focus on an existing category, ideally, a very big category that's moving slowly and try to like segment out parts of it or reimagine parts of it. But if someone were to ask me about category creation, my advice is not to create a category for sure. I'm um, Pep I don't do
1: fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, David Cancel, CEO at Drift. Since its founding in 2015, Drift has created the conversational marketing and sales category. Drift has since become a unicorn. Their team is now over 700 people with over 120 million in revenue and 150,000 customers. In this episode, we talk about the true cost of category creation. We hear about innovative marketing strategies to build mental availability at low cost. And we hear about the death of product-based differentiation. Let's get into it. So Drift is a poster child for category creation. Was that the play and the idea from the get-go, like when you started the company?
0: Yes, pretty much from the early days, it was part of the idea of starting the company. And it was it was an insane one to think that you have the audacity to to want to create a category. But the reason that we wanted to create a category was not because we wanted to create one. I didn't know anything about category creation. It had to do with... The change that we were trying to point out to people and identifying to educate people around was so big, so massive, that we needed to kind of reframe their thinking from the existing way that they maybe thought about some of the technologies we were talking about. And to do that, we believed we needed to create a new category. We were the only one, obviously, when we created the category, but that there would be tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of companies over time that would be in that category. Again, not because of having anything to do with us or me or any of the people involved, but just because that change was happening in the world, and we were just the set of people who would give it a name and give it a term. And
1: that change in the world, that insight, did it develop over the years, and you all, you know knew about it for a long time, or was that like workshopped?
0: It was workshopped in my brain. I would say, you know, like for me, at this point of being an entrepreneur and being curious, I think about it in terms of not necessarily what I want to create, but really about spotting trends that are happening, mega trends, changes in human behavior. And when I looked at them and spent a lot of time deeply thinking about them, I thought that everything that I had built in the past, which was solely marketing and sales software, it was made for a world that didn't exist anymore, that it was made for a world where the companies were scarce, And because of that, they could dictate the sales process and the delivery process and kind of inflict that on the buyer or the customer because those customers and buyers had no choice. And we were going to a world of like infinite supply. And in that world that we thought the power would shift to the buyer, to all of us, the individuals. And so like that was the observation. And it was like a pretty quick aha moment and being like, if that's true and if our timing is right, you know, the, both of those conditions need to be correct for it to work, then everything has to be rethought, reimagined, and we need to create new categories. We've created one, but there had to be probably multiple categories that describe this and all the software and all the services and, and, more importantly, the human processes that we're used to would all have to change.
1: Live chat and even chatbots had been around for a long time. Years. It's interesting to note that Drift did not say we're new or better chat software. They did not compare themselves to what came before. That made all the difference. They talked about the change in the world. People use real-time messaging to talk to each other. And the idea that you fill out a form on a website and then wait 24 hours to hear back is completely outdated. They designed a new category. What is category design? Here's an explanation by Christopher Lockhead, the man who wrote a book on it category design is a proactive way of doing what you might call radical differentiation. It's about distinguishing yourself
2: because the most legendary innovators and marketers, they don't want to be
0: compared to what came before them. They want to be known as unique. They want to break or take new ground. And most importantly, they want all others to be compared to them.
1: There's an argument against category creation versus tapping into pre-existing demand, which is that it takes a lot of effort to sell your story, the, the narrative, and you, of course, you guys, that podcast, uh, the hypergrowth conference, is a, like a whole bunch of let's call it customer education
0: or telling the story effort went on. That was nothing to do with the business, right? No, no, you know, we were, we had to educate a whole market that maybe have impacted. In the long term, the short term, the business a little bit, but we had to go beyond that if we were to educate a market. But I think, you know, like if someone were to ask me about category creation, my advice was not to create a category, for sure. Like, I think, you know, what you're saying is what I would recommend to them, which is like the more powerful thing and the better thing is to really focus on an existing category, ideally a very big category that's moving slowly and try to like segment out parts of it or reimagine parts of it, but not to create a category, I think. That's a, a crazy thing to do but because the category, again, is not about you willing it to existence or educating your way into existence. It's about really a change that it, in, in some ways has nothing to do with, with you or your product or service.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult because
0: it's too expensive? It's expensive. It's painful. You will most likely, it's almost like starting a company, you will most likely be wrong because not only has the change has to be true but your timing has to be almost perfect right because you have to be the first one to really spot it and want to create a category around it before anybody else does and not too early in the cycle before it doesn't matter so like the timing has to be right you know when we create a conversation of marketing like the concepts and ideas were not were ones that probably have been kicked around for a little while but like The thing, the reason that I I knew that we could create a category was that we were looking at uh, human changes in behavior around messaging, texting and chat and Slack and Discord and all these things that we use today. And we were looking at the adoption rates and we were looking at the adoption rates globally. Again, not of our software, just of messaging as a category. And we saw like, wow, we had gone past the tipping point because we had crossed a point where now, no matter your age range or your global location, people were choosing messaging as their primary communication method over phone calls and emails and and other traditional forms. And so the timing was perfect. But like all those things have to line up perfectly. And, you know, as you know, in, in terms of starting companies, you usually can't wait around to get timing just perfect or, you know, spend tons of money just sitting there hoping it's right. You know, you don't have that luxury. And so for us, we were lucky on the timing side. But, you know, it took a lot of energy to spot it and to be ready.
1: Category creation is an attractive play. Once you're the king of a category, you'll get all these amazing benefits like mindshare and mental availability. You're different. You have no direct competition. You escape the trap of better. However, creating categories is no easy feat and most are naive about the millions it takes to pull it off. You need to educate the whole market and make them look at the world with new eyes and understand that now they need you. Instead of tapping into pre-existing demand, you create demand from scratch. In the beginning, people are not looking for you. And even if you pull it off, someone can be a fast follower and out-execute you and steal the spotlight. It's something Nick Mehta, the CEO of Gainsight, had to be aware of when they set out to create their own category of customer success.
3: Category creation, if you think about it, there's a lot of really interesting, attractive things about it. You know, First of all, if you're in a new category, if you're defining a category the right way, you often don't have a lot of competitors. That's exciting in the early days, right? You can define it yourself. You also don't have a lot of noise. I mean, one of the things that's good in category creation is you're not trying to sort out from a thousand different companies. You're trying to create your own space. You also don't have pre-existing notions. It's been cool to be able to define what customer success is. The bummer is you don't have any customers <laughs> because category creators usually start with no customers, right? If you're doing category creation and if we're honest, you know it's really hard. There's actually an article that just came out as we we're preparing for the talk on how to create a category. Yeah. An article came out and said, don't create a category. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, we better read this one. And the reality is there's a big dark side to creating a category. Not every category creator is the category winner. You can think of a lot of examples throughout history where one company created a category, another fast follower kind of upended that company and took the category. Think of the first computer that wasn't a Mac or a PC, Think of the first MP3 player that wasn't an iPod, or think of the first search engine that wasn't Google. Yeah. It's actually really hard because you're trying to create something that didn't exist before, educate people on the new way to do things. These were the people that didn't reap the category benefit.
1: If you had to put a price tag on it to create a category and inform the public at large about the story and so on, what are we talking about here? 10 million?
0: More? It probably cost us about $10 million, I'd say. You know, that order of magnitude, it was definitely not a million. Not 5 million. So, you know, it was greater than five and probably less than 20 if I were to think about it. So, super expensive. And we had to have the timing just right to be able to do it. So, it's kind of crazy.
1: So, tell me more about strategic thinking at a time. So, you wanted to create a category, you had a story to tell, you made all these events and, you know, the, lots of content. What else was going on?
0: My strategy you know when it came to marketing at this phase of the company in the early days was that that in order for us to stand out we were going to have to just spend time trying to find and invest in areas that marketers had either were ignoring because they were small and fringe and weird and hard to measure or had fallen out of favor and the reason i was thinking that way was that because we had to disproportionate amount of mindshare in a way that would be as low cost as possible. And for a long time, digital marketing has taught us to really focus and put an emphasis on the tools and the metrics and the numbers, and it's more about like operating systems and, and channels and platforms than it is around marketing in the way that I think about it in the old sense. And the problem with that is that leads to a kind of thinking where marketers are chasing channels and opportunities that have really good scale, so large audiences, but are really easy to measure, right? Because they have to prove that this thing is working or that they're getting traffic or leads or whatever way or dollars, whatever way that you're measuring it. You know, the problem with that kind of thinking for me is that really marketing and standing out and and getting your messages stand out is really about looking for arbitrage opportunities, right? That's basically opportunity in the system. And by the time a channel, let's say like a Google AdWords or Facebook, you know, ads or whatever method that you're using, TikTok or this or that, by the time that it's at scale and easy to measure, like the arbitrage has been worked out of those systems already. Those early movers have come in and really made a lot of money or really had a large amount of impact and now you're everyone is fighting for very low levels of conversion or very low levels of audience accessibility and so like for us we weren't going to invest in any of those traditional ad based systems or other marketing systems that other people were going to do we we're just going to do like non obvious things at the time that we thought would help stand us out create our own conference which you know everyone has their own conference at this point but we were like audacious about it and we were like we're going to get like 2,000 people to show up for our first one and then we're going to get like 5,000 and then we're going to get like 10,000 in our third year and it's like how are we going to do that that's for a one-day event and we're not going to have any sponsors and we're not going to have any um booths which I hate like the vendor booths and we're not going to have any of that stuff and it's going to be reimagining of this whole thing and by doing all of that which was hard and expensive and a risk, that helped us stand out. You know, we're going to write a book. Again, you know, lots of people writing books now, but this was six years ago. We're going to write a book. We're going to do this.
1: You were consciously looking at a different way to do marketing that's not oversaturated yet.
0: Yes. Yeah. But because of that, super risky. Lots of failures there. We did lots of attacks. of. We would take over other people's events. We did billboards in, in kind of weird and strategic ways that made us seem like we were... Bigger than we were. And we were like always like punching above our weight in terms of the way that we were able to stand out. We would never join somebody else's event. We would never sponsor another event. We would only do things where we were kind of the center of attention.
1: And how did the product strategy and the marketing strategy evolve as you started
0: growing? I'd say it largely remained the same until we were probably like 500 people. And I think what changed was really. A lot of people started to emulate the stuff that we were doing, so then the arbitrage gets moved out of there, like we were talking about. We were pretty early on, like doing the very beginning of doing like LinkedIn takeovers, right before every company would do that, where every everyone in the company.
1: What do you mean by LinkedIn takeover?
0: We would like dominate feeds. We would get everyone in the company, and as we grew, there was a lot of people to. Film their own videos announcing something, you know, just like them on their phone, just walking down the street. And then all of a sudden, you know, like we'd announce something and it'd be like hundreds of these um, videos that get deployed organically, right? We didn't give anyone a script. We didn't tell them exactly what to say, any of that. They would just do it out of pure excitement. And early on, we could take over and dominate LinkedIn for the day or for the couple of days. And we would hear, From lots and lots of people, many of who we didn't know, or many of the companies that we didn't know of like, wow, like what is Drift? Like my entire feed has been taken over by Drift all day.
1: What David is talking about here, I know as the surround sound effect. All the people around you talking about one thing. It could be a book they all read, a podcast episode to listen to, or a tool they used. And you can totally engineer this. Here's Alex Burkett talking about the surround sound effect and how Tim Ferriss used it to launch his books.
0: You'll, you'll notice that when he launches a book, he's on all of the podcasts, all of the blog posts. He's doing all the interviews in a period of about two to four weeks. So at, at one point, you're eventually like, dang, I gotta check this out, he's everywhere. So it's basically saying the more people hear uh, about your product from different sources, the more likely they're likely to check you out as somebody seriously to consider. So as a model, we can look at it like this with the increase of mentions, you you have a linear increase of probability of purchase. So one mention, it's somewhat likely, but not super likely, and then with a ton of mentions, it's very likely you're gonna get somebody to buy. So translated to the software industry, this is a fairly simple example. This is something you might have a conversation with your friends, or you could go to Google, but you say, like, I need a live chat tool. And if every source says you should try HubSpot, you're gonna be pretty darn likely to try HubSpot. We would do um, weird stuff around billboards or, or show up at other people's events like Saster, which was a big event in our category, and you know, deploy, you know, vans that were had or take over train cars that people were taking to Saster and wrap the entire trains in drift. And we would just look for weird things like that where it would stand out even though we spent like a fraction of what maybe someone had spent in a booth who was sponsoring that event. And we would just take over the mind share of those people there. And we would always do, like, let's say, wrap the train, we would always do like three things at once. So it was just like ping ponging around that person who's attending there of like drift scenes everywhere. The truth is, drift was not everywhere. It might have been in like three places, but like, they were the three places that you were going to cross.
1: People don't buy things they don't know. To start, you need to build awareness that you exist, what someone might use you for, and when. Then you need to create a mental availability, which means to be thought of by category buyers in buying situations. Brand building, whether that's flash mobbing a train car or taking over LinkedIn, doesn't drive immediate purchases, but it creates saliency. So next time in the future when they need a product like yours, you might be in their consideration set. Five key things to achieve this one, avoid silence, continuously trying to reach all buyers of the category and spend as much as you can on advertising. Two grab attention and avoid sameness. Most marketing makes little difference because most marketing is little different. Three, consistently use distinct brand assets. Many leading marketing effectiveness thinkers make the case that differentiation is increasingly hard. So focus on distinctiveness first. Distinctiveness is a form of differentiation, owning some visual aspects like DHL owns yellow red combo. Four, be consistent about your brand. Five, repeat yourself, a lot. When you start to feel sick at how much you've repeated the same message, that's when it's just starting to get through. Marketing idols Les Binet and Peterfield have vividly demonstrated with their work on getting the right balance between brand building and activation or performance marketing. They argue that the most effective advertising is split 60-40 between brand building and activation.
2: It's really important to understand that marketing works in two very different ways over the short and the long term. The short-term effects of marketing are easy to understand. We call this sales activation. Sales activation is any kind of marketing activity which is intended to evoke a fairly immediate response from the consumer. For long-term growth, you need something different, and that's brand building. Brand building needs much broader reach because you need to talk to people, not just who are in the market right now, But people who might come to market over the next two to three years you need to engage them with things that are more humanly relevant more general more universal and crucially you need to engage them at the emotional level the final ingredient is memorability remember the point of brand building is to create long-term memories that influence sales over the long term so everything you do needs to be memorable the optimum effectiveness tends to be achieved when about 60% of the budget is devoted to long-term brand building and about 40% to short-term activation. We call this the 60-40 rule. But our latest research shows that that rule, that balance changes depending on category and context. What we're finding in the data is as the digital economy evolves, sales activation is becoming much more efficient what that means is that activation, as it becomes more efficient, requires less budget. And so, almost counterintuitively, the optimum split is shifting away from sales activation towards brand building. To put it simply, in a digital world, emotional brand building is more important than it's ever been.
1: And so, you, you mentioned copycats were coming, uh, cloning Drift or like parts of it. You knew in advance that this will happen. What did you do in anticipation and how did you maintain like the premiumness of Drift, knowing that there's going to be commoditization?
0: Yeah, kind of our premise was that all SaaS markets, because of where we were in the cycle, would be commoditized and that would include our own. And so even though we were creating a new category, if anything that we thought was correct in any way, then we ourselves would Get commoditized pretty quickly. We knew that. We thought that. We believed that. And so, in order to defend that, we disproportionately invested, at least for the size of our company, in building brand. And again, like a lot of people now talk about, you know, brand building when it comes to B two B. You're like, how do you build a brand and how do you do that? But like, there was no one talking about that six years ago. And so, we spent a lot of time building brand because we thought. We would need a brand and a global brand at that in order to stand out. The minute we started to get commoditized, and we also knew that we had to, from a product standpoint, continue to invest and to create a platform because any single feature or any single value proposition would be commoditized quickly. And I think that's true for us, and it's true for anyone else in the SaaS world today because we're just. I've published some stuff around this, you know, that I believe that there's these three cycles that markets go through and that we're like in the third cycle when it comes to SaaS software. You know, the first cycle is about pure invention. That was the early days of the commercial internet, right? Like, And so like your defensibility, back then we would have patents. We would basically be able to hide behind technology because what we were doing was so difficult for people, other people to figure out. It was so much work that you could hide behind kind of technology, like a technology moat. And then... You go into the second phase, which we were in for a long time, including my previous companies, and that was technology. Everyone knew how to do the technology by that point. It was all public. But what they didn't really understand was the business models that involved. I call that the Henry Ford phase. That's about factory building. Are you gonna build like vertical SaaS, horizontal SaaS? Are you gonna like, you know, do freemium product like growth? Are you gonna do mid market enterprise? A combination of those threes. You know, we didn't know things like What's your LTV mean? You know, lifetime value. What's LTB to CAC ratios? No one knew what any of that was. Those terms didn't exist. And so it was a mystery back then of like how you made the unit economics work. And then how did you like segment markets? But now when we started Drift and now where we are talking today, like everybody knows that everybody knows the business models, what those ratios should look like. Everyone knows how to do the technology. So like there's no moats around those things. The only moat left in a general sense, is like to build an affinity with your audience in the consumer, you know, world, and then have those people choose you for whatever reason over the competitor. In
1: 2016 or thereabouts, you famously tweeted that product-based differentiation is going away. Act accordingly.
0: In SaaS, a thousand percent, it's gone. It doesn't exist. The pandemic has like really fast-forwarded this idea of a, a global stage we always talked about that that was the kind of the dream of the internet now it's really true and what that means is that you're not competing with companies just around you you are competing with companies all over the world they're all on a level playing field and those companies can copy the business model they can copy the go-to-market they can copy the the words and the product and the technology that you've built upon and there's no defensibility left in those
1: In new and emerging categories, all the pieces are still up in the air and everything is still possible. Product-led differentiation can be huge, and it's how most startups start out, feature-based advantages. Product innovation is a way to dramatically accelerate growth, but those are transient advantages, not sustaining competitive advantages. You have one to three years to milk your position, and then everyone will catch up, and so you need to cook up your next advantage. In mature categories, product-based differentiation is minimal to not possible. The way to grow is to grab a fundamentally different position in that market or to out-innovate the competition, and ideally both. Sometime last year or maybe 2020, Drift studied using revenue acceleration, so moving away from conversational commerce as the leading message to revenue acceleration. How did that come about, what we're trying to achieve there?
0: Sure, I would categorize this in a mistake category so we can talk about what we learned from them. We had created the categories of conversational marketing and conversational sales, and we needed a bridge. We knew that we were always going to head towards this kind of conversational commerce future. But we had to get the timing just right and didn't seem like we were getting there just yet. But we needed a way to encapsulate the marketing and sales side into like a single story. So we started to develop and create this idea of a revenue acceleration platform and revenue acceleration being like the key benefit that our customers would get from using our products, whether marketing or sales. And so we launched that and i categorize that as a mistake because it violated the rules that i mentioned before which were that category creation had to do with our problem not a market problem so that was a drift problem like we needed this bridge and it took into no account you know a market and a market being ready those two things having to be true it was still useful in terms of like a frame that we could use to talk about ourselves with customers and differentiate, but like, was it successful as creating uh, in terms of creating a category? No, and and I think it's because we violated those rules.
1: Most successful B two B companies tap into what people already want and look for. Market demand fuels a lot of the growth. They tap into pre existing demand or solve a previously unsolved big problem. You could even say that an undifferentiated, commoditized product can make millions just because people already want it. If a product or service does not cater to existing demand, you need to work so much harder and it's going to take a lot more money. It's interesting that even drift, a byword for category creation, can slip up. As David said, revenue acceleration violated the rules of a strategic narrative. What is a strategic narrative? Here's Andy Raskin explaining it. In general, I I think of it as the story in any human's head that guides their actions. In the business context, what every business is looking for, what every leader is looking for is to align everyone around a a strategy. So if we can have that same narrative, that same strategic narrative be embraced by customers, employees, everybody, then it becomes this strategic narrative narrative not just for a person, but for the company and the whole and everyone
0: that the company touches.
1: So what's going to happen next in this (laughs) communication, (laughs) messaging?
0: We've just started the beginning of of it. This whole conversational world has gone from when we started being like one of one to now there's hundreds of companies in these categories. And so the commoditization is happening. But I think the important thing is that it's helping buyers. And I think the first inning that we've been in has really been focused around the messaging part and the conversation part and making it like accessible. But the second part which we're we've been underway and we've been working on really has to do with like, how do we make this intelligent, not only accessible to the the buyer, which is the most important part, but also accessible to the company. And so, like, how do we organize all of these words and store all of these words that are being said by our customers? How do we make sense of them? How do we take action on them in in, in you know both a synchronous way, like a real time way, and in a non real time way? And so, like after the fact. So, like that whole thing is coming now, and I think this idea of building companies having a conversational database is on its way. And so that's what we're focused on now. Because for the first time ever, companies can not only have those conversations with their customers across all these different channels, but they can also capture that information, make sense of it, and then build intelligence on that in a way that we've never been able to do before.
1: You've said that over the next decade, messaging will continue to eat the world and in order to survive and compete, enterprises need to flip their traditional model. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Mm -hmm. All the software that we work with and that we all use as customers for a company-centric world, meaning to serve the company first and what happened to you as the customer or your experience as a customer were not in consideration, right? And so we think all of those tools, whether it's across support, marketing, sales, that touch the customer, that interact with the customer, have to be rethought. And so you're going to see a whole new type of sales, marketing, and service suite that will emerge over the next few years. So that's the part that I'm really excited about. Thinking about how we reimagine and, and recreate all this is gonna be is is super exciting for me.
1: What what are you banking on today to reach your next milestone?
0: People. It's the only thing that the only thing you can bank on is people. And that's where I spend all my time trying to figure out the right having the right people for the right phase. And there are people that are are the right people and they were the right people for a different phase or maybe the next phase and so just getting that right is a constant cycle of learning and changing and it has it doesn't there's different phases and there are people who enjoy working in a certain phase or a certain type of company who might not love the next part of the journey and might like being a solo entrepreneur or might like starting their own business or joining a smaller business you know or joining a bigger business depending on what they like and so like i think what people want what we all want as humans are are very simple things and they're not there's not much more to it so one of
1: the key factors driving drift success one they timed their category creation strategy perfectly and knew the risks of failure.
0: It's almost like starting a company. You will most likely be wrong because not only has the change has to be true, but your timing has to be almost perfect, right? Because you have to be the first one to really spot it and want to create a category around it before anybody else does and not too early in the cycle before it doesn't matter. So like the timing has to be right. Two. They went left
1: field and marketed in ways no one was doing at the time. They didn't follow what others were doing,
0: instead did
1: kind of the opposite.
0: We're just going to do like non-obvious things at the time that we thought would help stand us out. Create our own conference where we were like audacious about it and we were like, we're going to get 2,000 people to show up in for our first one. And by doing all of that, which was hard and expensive and a risk, that helped us stand out.
1: Three they understood that product-based differentiation is going away and acted accordingly.
0: You are competing with companies all over the world. They're all on a level playing field, and those companies can copy the business model, they can copy the go-to-market, they can copy the, the words and the product and the technology that you've built upon, and there's no defensibility left in those. In SaaS, a thousand percent, it's gone. It doesn't exist. Two final takeaways from David about your success. One would be like this maniacal focus on, our, on the buyer, which for me and for many in our, in our world, no one had to ever really focus on. And the second one would be the, our team and having that ability to continue to learn and learn from the buyer, learn from our customers and their buyers, and continue to have to reimagine and rethink the way that we build these tools, the way that we market, the way that we go to market. That is hard and that is painful because that involves, you know, being okay with being constantly wrong and uh, having to redo your work and rethink and re-examine.
1: That's how you win. I'm Pep Lam. For more tips, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter.